You're listening to the podcast, So You Want to Be a Writer, with Valerie Koo and Allison Tate. Valerie is an author, journalist, and national director of the Australian Writers' Centre, which is one of the world's leading providers of online and classroom courses for people who want to get published and write with confidence. Alison Tate is a freelance writer, blogger, and author of the best-selling series, The Mapmaker Chronicles. She has more than 20 years' professional writing experience. Each week, they explore the world of writing, publishing, and blogging to bring you news and opportunities, advice on how to succeed in the world of writing, interviews with top writers, and much more. With students enrolling from all over the world, you can find out more about the Australian Writers' Centre at writerscentre.com.au. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 73 of So You Want to Be a Writer. My name's Valerie Koo and I'm here with Alison Tate. How are you, Al? I'm very well, thank you, Valerie. What's very been, well. What's been happening in our world? Oh, our world's been kind of busy. We revealed the cover for the Mapmaker 3. I can't remember if we talked about that last week or not. It's awesome. Um, it's awesome. And Ash is on the cover, which is very exciting for everybody because yes. she's got a massive fan club. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and apart from that, I, I don't know. I've just, I don't know, I'm busy. I, I, I seem to spend my lives chasing my tail and then I get to the end of it and wonder what I did. But yes. I guess everybody feels the same way, don't they? Yeah, you know, it's just, yeah. it's getting to be at that time of year. You know, yeah. I think once you get to the home stretch, it's kind of like September onward. It just goes mm. crazy, September, October, November, because everyone wants everything done before Christmas. Uh-huh. And then you collapse in a heap. Mm. Mm, mm. Pretty much. So, you know, it's, yeah, it's a bit like that. But let's see what's been happening. Let's get stuck straight into it, huh? Yeah, let's, because clearly we've got nothing to talk about. So let's do, <laughs> let's talk about other more interesting things. Well, I think that people wouldn't be very excited to hear it. Like, you know, I went to the bank this morning and then I had another fight with Telstra and, you know, it's not exciting. Let's talk about the world of let's talk about this All right, writing and publishing and blogging this week. Right. So I've got an interesting find for you. I don't know if you've heard of it, actually. Actually, you might have already. It's called Blind Date with a Book and it's blinddatewithabook.com. So this is actually a so I've seen this done in um I've seen this done in bookshops. Elizabeth's bookshop in Newtown does this and they have a wall of books and they're all wrapped in brown paper and and you basically the, the idea is that you choose one and um and take it home without actually knowing what it's all about. But um, That's exactly I haven't right. seen the website. Well, yeah, it is run by Elizabeth's Bookshop. Oh, there you go. So yes. they're doing it online. What yes. a great idea. They are doing it online. So what it is, it's, it's wrapped in brown paper and all you have is a vague description such as 1930s Hollywood or uh, an ex-monk <laughs> or burnt out detective and that's it so the whole point being don't judge a book by its cover uh and you know you, you just Amish mystery <laughs> yeah Amish mystery that's right um hermaphroditism <laughs> hermaphroditism you know I have to say that they're so gorgeous because they're all wrapped in brown paper they've got the string around them and the little lady beetle on the tag and they just look so cute I reckon they'd be a fantastic present for someone if you've got a um, you know, a mad reader in your life who struggles to find the next book, then I think it would be a fantastic gift 
to send to somebody. Absolutely. And they start like at twelve ninety five and they're usually around twelve ninety five, sixteen ninety five, eighteen ninety five. And if uh, you ship within Australia it's five dollars. You ship internationally it's ten dollars. So I think it's just a really cute idea and I thought we'd mention it. Oh how cute is this one? There's one here under guilty pleasure, which is always a good thing for me. Yes. Chicklet, guilty pleasure, a playboy, orphaned toddler, musical chairs for couples. That's the description of the book, That's is it? That's the description of the book. Yes. Because- musical chairs for couples. I mean... <laughs> 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 because every uh, book does have about five dot points about what it's about. So that's ex- that's exactly right. Um, something that's very similar, actually. I found oh. this while browsing on Instagram over the weekend. I know you're not that inst- into Instagram now, but uh, I'm getting... But others are, and that's good. Yes, and I'm getting into it. And there's an account called Swell Valley Blood Pulse. Swell Valley Blood Pulse on Instagram and she seems to kind of just write micro reviews kind of like what you just read out some dot points so for Tim Winton's book Eerie how do you actually say that word E-Y-R-I yeah I think it's Eerie yeah Uh, she's described it as Fremantle, ecological crisis, poverty, childhood, middle age, prescription drugs, wine, high-rise apartments, landscape, birds, trauma, threat, beautiful, pitch perfect (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> that's her micro um her micro view but for example christos Solkos, the slap which as we know became the uh, very popular miniseries swell valley blood pulse has said melbourne barbecue points of view middle class obnoxious drugs alcoholism barley deception violence pointless overlong poorly oh. written oh mm. So she's not backward in coming forward about what she really thinks. And other other people's comments are always always fascinating as well. Well, that's interesting. Okay, so she's so she's doing little you know mini micro book reviews. It's actually quite difficult to sum a book up like that. So it takes a fair bit of skill to come up with a list of you know not not too many words to actually pull a book together. I don't know. Would you would you read a book based on that? Oh, I'd probably, yeah, I don't know. I'd probably, what I'd probably do is read a few of her recommendations or non-recommendations, see whether she's on the money or not, and then I'd decide whether I, she's, you know, my kind of girl or, you know, whether we share the same tastes. Right. Mm. I'm actually, I am on, you realise that I am actually on Instagram. I just don't actually do anything with it. Yes, I do know that. I've got 171 followers and I do nothing. There you go. There you go. I should probably do something with that. I think I? you should because you're quite visual. You're into that sort of thing. Well, I just have to put up 86,000, you know, photos of Procrasti Pop because that's pretty much all I photograph these days. Well, you should see my Instagram feed. <laughs> it's, gone, it's got more than 87,000 photos of my cats. But anyway. Oh, oh yeah. Let's talk about that. Okay. I, ca- on. I came else? across another interesting link. It was more the story that was in the link and it was by James Scott Bell and he was talking about it. It's from a blog called Kill Zone. Oh, yeah, which is a great blog. Yes. Yeah. And he is talk- was talking about how he was sitting on a plane and the woman next to him got out her paperback and he got out his Kindle and, you know, you occupy yourself when you're on the plane and he's reading his Kindle and she's reading her paperback and as she keeps on reading, every so often she, she reads, you know, X number of pages and she 
tears those pages out and puts them in the back of her seat pocket. And he just went, okay, right, whatever. And after a while, uh, time went on and she she kept on reading and then she did it again, put it in the seat pocket. And she kept on doing it. Eventually he couldn't help himself and he said, why do you do that? And like, well, he actually said, that must be a trashy novel. Boom, Tish. Um, And she said that she usually picks up paperbacks before she goes on a trip at a garage sale and she doesn't want to carry them around. So as she reads, she just tears off the pages and she's left with a smaller book to fit into her handbag. (laughs) I'm just like, would you ever do that? Have you ever heard of such a thing? No. I could never, ever tear pages out of a book. No, I mean, we have absolutely no qualms whatsoever about folding corners as no. we discussed and created massive controversy. But, yeah, I, well, what if, you, what if you want to give it to someone? Like, I just would rather pass it on to someone else when I'm finished with it, which is what I do with them. You know, my yes. mother, who has eight billion books of her own, remains and still gets all mine because, you know, she might want to read it one day. Mm. I, in saying that, I just read Michael Robotham's new one last week. Oh, yes. And I have to say, the man is on fire. It was so good. Really? So I read that in the space of about, because I read very quickly. Mm. Um, so I had consumed it in the space of two train journeys to Sydney. Wow. And, and it was really funny because she went up with me on the train and I was, she goes, oh, my God, you're halfway finished. And I said, yes. And so, you know, I'll have it done by the time I get back tomorrow. And she's great. She's like, great, just drop it off at my house on your way home. Awesome. <laughs> so, yeah, I would never, ne- I mean, I, I just think you commit. Like if you're yes. going to carry that much book, you carry that much book until yes. you finished it. I just couldn't do it. I couldn't tear no. pages out of a book. I even It pains me when I tear pages out of a blank notebook even. Mm. Can't do it. Mm. Anyway, anyway, let's move on to some controversy this week. Oh, yes. Okay. Uh, This was in Mumbrella, but it was, you know, reported many other places. And it's an interesting thing because it's something that has happened in the past. uh, And it was the charity behind New South Wales Journalism's biggest awards will be launching a major review of its processes after telling The Guardian to return an award it was incorrectly given because the wrong name was sent to the engravers. What? Yes. So the Kennedy Awards were plagued with a series of technical glitches, including the wrong winner videos being played in both the turf and racing writer category and incorrect winners being tweeted from the official account. Oh, Dear. Yes, so the Guardian, the poor Guardian photographer, Mike Bowers, had to return his award for outstanding photographic essay, which should have been given to Fairfax's Nick Walker. So the wrong name was sent to the engravers, and the wrong name was announced on the night. But How does that happened. But while Mike and Bowers, then they wanted him to give it back. Yes, yes, and don't you just have to go? Sorry. Well, well we've you know. But how about this? He, Mike Bowers' name was announced, and he came. You know, he he was called out from the stage. But the winning video that was played was Nick Walker's video. Oh. And oh, so, that's so awkward. Yes, and so Mike Bowers was only told five days later that he should not have won it. Five days later. This is this is almost like um, you know Sarah Murdoch announcing the wrong winner of Australia's Top Model on yeah. live television. Remember that? That was scandalous. Yes. Five days later, and it's all oh, that's terrible. Yes, and um, but what's interesting? Not only was he told five days later, he uh, Nick Walker was actually told on the night he should have won it. So he was you know left in the dark for five days. So not nice. Yeah, that's there's a big process problem there somewhere, isn't there? Mm. 
Mm. So procedures, people. Check your procedures. Yes. It also reminds me of, I can't remember what award it was. It was about 10 or 15 years ago, 15 years ago probably, where Frank Morehouse was told he won a particular literary award and it was like $40,000 or something like that. And um, But then, yeah, he was told a little while later, sorry, we gave you the wrong one. <laughs> I'd be insisting on keeping it. Like, <laughs> yes. You know what? Sorry, but... I've got the trophy. It's got my name on it. <laughs> yes, you know. Well, mm. all right. No good. No good. But just so, some interesting little bits of uh, trivia for this week's uh, links, I think. All right. But you have a writing book for us. I do have a writing book for us. I, I have to say that I can't actually uh, comment too closely on it at the moment because I saw it this morning and I just downloaded it. Um, it's a book called Write Better Faster. Oh, I want to write better, faster. uh, How to triple your writing speed and write more every day. Mm. Growth hacking for storytellers. So Mm. the the title caught my eye and I thought, well, that sounds like something that many, because a lot of, okay, here's the thing. Most people, when I say to them, what's your number one writing problem, tell me that they can't fit it into their lives, that there's no time and there's no anything. So my theory is if you can write faster, you can get more done. So if you've only got 10 minutes a day, you know, you can be cranking out some some serious words. So I'm going to read the book for you and I will report back next week. It's called Write Better Faster by Monica Lionel. And uh, I will have some further response for you on that next week. But interestingly, it's actually uh, free on Kindle at the moment. Oh, great. Um, Yeah. I'm not sure how long that offer is going to last, but right now it is. Okay. Look forward to hearing your review. Are you going to do like a micro review? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, probably not because I, you know, I'm, I'm generally a bit wordier than that, aren't I? <laughs> yes, yes. Well, one thing that's been happening this week in the world of blogging is something that you and I didn't go to. No, we did not. No, and that was no. the Pro Blogger event. And we have been in the past, however, and had a fabulous time. Fabulous time. In fact, I think I've been for, well, five years in a row or so. And but this is my first year uh, that I haven't gone in that long. Um, and because, you know, I'd love to go, of course, but there's just – only so many hours in the day, so many mm. days in the week and all that kind of stuff. So, so many weeks in the year. Yeah. So many, yeah, yeah, we could go on. Anyway. Did you have FOMO? No, no, not so much. I've been so busy I didn't actually have time. Also, I read a really interesting story that um, my friend Alex Carlton wrote and mm. she's written a thing about FOGO, which Ooh. is fear of going out oh, instead yes. of fear of missing out. Yes. And I'm, I'm sort of into that zone of my life where I'd rather be on my sofa in many ways. So FOMO is not such a problem for me these days. But anyway, let's talk about it. Tell me what you wanted yes, to say about yes. ProBlogger. Uh, interesting because um, oh, I had little elements of FOMO because I usually go with um, a bunch of friends, so the same mm. friends, and so I kind of missed hanging out with them. But then I realised I'm seeing them on tomorrow night anyway, like just in there Sydney, so it's okay. <laughs> I can calm down. Yeah, um, but I did hear because one of the uh, overseas guests was Deuce, mm. who is uh, Heather, what's her last name? Armstrong. Armstrong. Kathy Armstrong. Yes. And she writes a very popular blog called Deuce, D-O-O-C-E, for anyone who's, who is unfamiliar. She's like the original mum blogger. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And so, you know, she's been in the industry forever and is, has a very popular blog. And one of the things that she said, apparently, so I'm hearing this secondhand, but I, you know, trust my source, is she said that uh, she believes that monetizing personal blogging is going to 
die soon. And that's why she's no longer monetizing. And she says that in the US, the only way you can successfully monetize now is with sponsored posts. And over time, personal bloggers are getting sick of having to sell themselves in that way. And that many of the bloggers she knows in the US aren't enjoying blogging anymore. Mm. What do you think? Do you think monetizing personal blogging is going to die? Um, I have seen dissatisfaction with it. Like I've never monetized my blog, even sort of back in my earliest days of Life in a Pink Fibro when it was more probably, you know, more of a focus on personal than I have now. Um, But I have seen a lot of dissatisfaction in that area. I think part of the problem is, and anyone who's ever worked in magazines and written advertorial copy will understand where I'm coming from on this. I think that there just comes a point where, it, you know, it's it just it's just another job, and mm. when you're writing sponsored posts all the time, it you lose you lose some of the personality and flavour. I don't, and, and I know lots of people. Before everybody jumps on my head and kicks me, mm. I know that lots of people do them very well, and I'm not saying that they don't. But I also write advertorial copy very well, and I don't want to do it all the time. Mm. Um, I just think that you know, there, if there's an element of sell in your writing all the time, then you know, particularly when it's your own words, your own space, your own opinion, mm. and that's what you're selling. I just think you get tired of it. And I think that that's, that's one thing. And I also think that blogs that are, you know, there's a, there's a reader dissatisfaction with, with blogs that are nothing but sponsored posts. Mm. And I think that that's another problem. However, it depends on your blog as well. I'm only talking about personal blogs. Like I know if you've got some other platform within your blog, be it fashion, be it food, be it beauty, be it whatever, then sponsored content seems to work a lot better. Yes, absolutely. Would you agree? Yeah, I think that uh, when you want to monetize something, a blog, you largely need eyeballs because people are paying for the eyeballs Mm. or, you know, Mm. that your sponsors are paying for the eyeballs. And I think that we've gotten to a stage where so many people, regardless of whether it's personal blogging or business blogging or any kind of blogging, are so focused on eyeballs that they've lost sight, pardon the pun, of... um, you know, what their actual goal is because Mm. I was speaking at the key person of influence, uh, you know, big event uh, last week and one of the questions from the audience was from a woman who her interest, her specialisation is, of all things, biotech. (laughs) And um, she said, how in the world do I cut through, how in the world can I get my blog read by more people? How in the world can, you know, I write all this stuff on my blog and how do I just get more people to read it so that they can discover, you know, what my expertise is and, and discover more about me? And I said to her, you are never going to get all of those eyeballs. Like these, these people are never going to magically find you. So therefore, you don't even try. In your industry, in biotech, you can probably count the number of people who you actually want to make connections with. You, you probably mm. go to an industry conference and they're all there, a biotech mm. industry conference. So you don't even bother to try and you know, hope that they come, those eyeballs are going to come and and read your blog. Just use your blog as a library almost of your thoughts and showcase your expertise. And when you go meet these people afterwards, send them an email, say, oh, we talked about X, you you know, whatever that topic is, you might be interested in these two blog posts I wrote about the topic. Mm. Because you don't have to, you only have to get it in front of the right people. Yeah. It doesn't have to be a million people. Exactly, exactly. Mm. And I think that, well, I hope that people eventually realise that it just needs to get in front of the right people. Mm. Mm. 
Interesting, but it will look. I think that look the, the blogging. I think the blogging world is always like it's it's always changing. Every yes. year it's different. Um, I've really like I've been blogging now for nearly six years, and you know I've, there's been a lot of changes in that six year period, and I've noticed. And part of the problem has also been the diversification of platforms. People are, um, you know, whereas they would blog and they might be on Twitter and Facebook, now they're on Instagram mm. and Periscope and eight billion things. And video is a big thing. People are doing YouTube, so yes. I, I think it's. Um, um, you know, it's fair to say that that diversification has brought, you know, changes in its own way. Mm. Um, and, you know, it's it's not easy to keep up with all that stuff. But I, I always say I don't, I just don't think you need to try. I think you basically got to choose the stuff that works for you and do that. Mm. Um, and I think that, yeah, it'll be interesting to see what does happen in the next 12 months. I just think, that, you know, you only have to look at the decline in commenting on blogs, mm. personal blogs or otherwise, to see you know, where things are changing, I think. Oh, myself. absolutely, absolutely. Mm. And um, so let's move on then away from let's. the world of blogging to something let's. quite different and that is our writer in residence this week. And who do you have for us? Well, something a bit different this week. We have Jill Margot. Now, Jill is actually the health editor at the Australian Financial Review, and mm. she's been a long-time business journalist. And about 15 years ago or so, she wrote um, a biography on Frank Lowy, who, of course, is the head of Westfield, you know, the mm. big, huge shopping centre conglomeration that's gone all over the world and is sometimes the the most richest richest man in Australia, sometimes the second most richest man in Australia, depending <laughs> on what day it is. Yes. Yeah. So she's, you know, he, he would have been already in his advanced years when she wrote the first biography, but he's done so much in his later in life that she's written a second biography on Frank Lowy oh, called right. A Second Life. Oh. Now, I have to say, and I said this to Jill as well, I have zero interest in... Frank Lowy <laughs> or <laughs> Westfield <laughs> or, you know, shopping centres or anything like that. But for some reason I picked up this book and it is a page turner. Oh, right. So had to interview Jill, and, you know, about the process of writing a biography and getting all of that information and trying to put someone else's life onto paper. So hope you enjoy the interview. Jill Margot is one of Australia's most respected journalists. Her work has won more than a dozen international and national awards, including a Walkley Award. She has written for the Australian Financial Review and published bestsellers in the fields of biography and health. In 2006, she was awarded the Order of Australia for her pioneering work in journalism and for her contribution to cancer awareness. During her 30-year career in journalism, Jill Margot has worked for the Sydney Morning Herald and The Australian. Her first biography on Frank Lowy was called Pushing the Limits. She has now released a second biography on him called A Second Life. So thanks for joining us today, Jill. That's my pleasure. Now, you've written two biographies of Frank Lowy now. Tell me why Frank Lowy? Well, because when I first heard his story, it, uh, it made an impact on me mm-hmm. and it moved me and... The sweep of his life was was impressive, and he told his story with very little sentiment and in such a matter-of-fact way that I sensed that the understatement was probably rich in meaning. Mm. Do you remember the first time you met Frank Lowy? 
Yes, I do. I, uh, I went to a function, and uh, there were very few people there, and we were standing in a little circle, and he was in the circle, and someone mentioned that I had a book coming out in a few days' time. It was a book on men's health. And he said, um, uh, would you send me a copy? And he gave me his card, and I did. And that was the beginning of this whole saga. And when was that? That was in the 90s. I think it was in the sort of about 1996, around there. Mm. And um, some time later, I can't remember exactly, his secretary called and said, um, would you come in and discuss the book with Mr. Lowy? I said, sure. So I went in and we talked. And uh, he, he, that's when he told me bits and pieces about his life. And I, was, I really knew nothing, nothing about him. Mm. And um, it was, I was, my imagination was really lit because, that meeting. Yes. Yeah. Now go on. And um, he said, well, actually, he was having a corporate history written about Westfield. And it's been, he, he mentioned who was writing it. It's been written by one woman and then by another woman, both of whom I know and who are both very good writers. Mm. And he said, well, I look at it. And I said, sure. And so I took, I took the manuscript home and I had a look. And then sometime later, he asked me what I thought. And I, I could see, actually that there were two things going on in the corporate history. There was um, the wonderful story of Westfield, and this incredible sort of building, this, this commercial empire. And there was also his personal story. And he thought it was one and the same, but I thought it was two different things. Mm-hmm. Um, I have to say, uh, I have zero interest in Frank Lowy. And, um, and you know, he, he, I know who he is and all the rest of it. But I picked up this book having no, you know, I'm not a fan of Frank Lowy and, or, or, or of Westfield or anything like that. You know, I don't have any particular opinion. And I have not been able to put it down. It is a page turner. Oh, I'm thrilled to hear it. It really is. I was saying to my partner, I just can't put this book down. I'm not even interested in this man. But I just, this story is just unfolding and the way it's written is fantastic. You've already written a biography on Frank um, that was well, 15 years ago or something. And why did you decide to have a second go? So as I explained, you know, so I, so I wrote that first biography after meeting him in the 90s. And that, that, that was really the sort of classic rags to riches story. You know, it was sort of birth to, to the age of 70, you know, from, 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 from being penniless to being a multi-billionaire and everything that went with it. And, um, and that was enough, you know, he kind of got to 70 and everybody thought that he would retire and that was largely the end. But then I watched from a distance and I saw that, in fact, he entered a whole new period of creativity. And in his mature years, it was a different way of being and it was with different objectives and different aims. It was fascinating to watch and I watched it for a few years. And because I'd written the first biography, I would read everything about him in the newspapers and listen to the radio and watch on television whenever, whenever he was on. Mm. And um, I started to see some new patterns unfolding. And um, so it occurred to me when the, f- the first book had been Rags to Riches and the second book could be, and then what? You mm. know, what? What do you do once you've got to that kind of level? And that, that's what the second book's about. It's, you know, it's a mature year, 70 plus. Mm. And what can you tell us how the first book came about? Because you're you specialise in health journalism. How did you know a biography of Frank Lowy come about? Did you propose the idea? Did he propose it to you? Did a publisher suggest it? What what happened? Um, so there already was this manuscript of the corporate history, mm. and uh, I thought that it could be. I thought it would be much more successful to be divided into two, to 
have a private to have a, have a corporate history with all the facts and the and the and the business angle, which would be interesting for a particular audience, a specialist audience, to harbour for corporate interest and a corporate biography, and then uh, and then a, and then take the, the personal story would have much more universal appeal, and so I kind of looked at the manuscript and I played with it and I and I made the suggestion to him that perhaps two things could happen, and um, he. He thought that was okay. You know, I don't think he was particularly enthused or... But he thought that was an okay idea, and he, he agreed to cooperate with me. Mm. And I, I started working on it, and I got a publisher. I went to HarperCollins. Mm. And uh, I did go other places first, but HarperCollins said yes, and uh, we were away. Mm. Now, just... Coming away from Frank Lowy for a second, you are health editor at the Australian Financial Review. Can you just yes. give us a bit of an idea of how you got to where you are now? You know, did you decide from when you were at school that you wanted to be a journalist? Just a just a brief career path, if you will. Sure. Well, I think I became um, a writer because I always felt I couldn't. I was attracted to writing because I felt I couldn't do it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and. Um, my mother was a, an English teacher and a librarian and a great reader, and she was always trying to encourage us children, the four of us, to read. In fact, she got to the point where she would bribe us to read. I think we would get five cents a book or ten cents a book, whatever it was, 20 cents for a big book. Yeah. And I was just, she just said that I was a hopeless case. You know, I just looked at the pictures and read the, first, the, the front and the back covers. And so I really feel a lack of having not been a great reader. I, would, I wish I had been. Mm-hmm. And um, so I always felt I couldn't write, so that's why I was drawn to it. <laughs> so, kind of... <laughs> so did you become a journalist immediately? Yes, After I, well, quite soon. No, no, I went to university mm-hmm. and I had a, had a kind of um, lowly... After I finished an honours degree in English, mm-hmm. I got a lowly job as a tutor. Mm-hmm. And then there was a. Then I really. I thought I, I thought I'd prefer to be a journalist. I immigrated to Australia from South Africa, mm-hmm. and I went and tried. Went to Fairfax and asked if I could be. Um, I think they were called cadets. They're now called interns. But I was a cadet, and I asked if I wanted to be a cadet, and I became one. And I just started at the bottom on um, on, a, on, a, on a on a rag. It was called the Sun. <laughs> yes, I and, remember the Sun. Um, <laughs> and. I just kind of, you know, you write so much and you're writing every day that, you know, eventually it becomes, you lose your self-consciousness. You're just forced to because somebody's standing over you and the clock's ticking. Mm. And you you can't be too, you know, too self-conscious or too prissy about what you're doing. And so you you get a kind of skill, you know, you become, becomes easier. Being a health journalist, though, is very different to writing biographies. How did you, did you find that you had to call on a different set of skills or did you think that they're the same skills? No, I think they're the same skills. You know, in journalism, you can write about anything, mm-hmm. you, and, and, you, and you have to on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. But um, I'm very interested in health for a whole lot of personal reasons and background reasons. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as often happens in journalism, I was sitting next to the health reporter, and he went away on holiday, and somebody said, well, just, just cover for him. Mm-hmm. And so I started covering for him. And in those days, this was, this was many years ago, all these medical journals used to come in to the paper, and I would read them with fascination. It was no effort and no, it wasn't work for me. For me, it was pure interest. Mm. And so I, I built up from there. And he actually came back from, from wherever he was and he wanted a different job. And so I slipped into his position. Mm-hmm. And so it went. It's all, it's all quite haphazard and by chance. 
Yes. So the book, uh, A Second Life, is very in-depth and the reader finds out a lot about Frank Lowy, the Lowy family generally. Can you talk us through the process of how you did this research? I mean, I can't even begin to think because there's such a huge body of of work and research there. Did you have a series of structured interviews or did you just spend time with the family? Can you talk us through that? Yeah, sure. Well, so... You, you must remember that I had the, the, the solid foundation of the first book. Yes. And um, when I came to write the first book, until, until that point, um, Westfield, Westfield has a very sophisticated publicity machine and marketing machine. And everything that was known about Frank and the family had gone through this machine and was carefully managed. So they weren't used to sort of talking, you know, to showing themselves publicly or, or, or talking openly. Mm. And they revealed something of themselves to me for the first book. And um, because that was safe and because nothing bad came of that, they had more confidence for the second book. Mm. And so um, so they were quite open. And I have this technique where I say to people in an interview, to anyone really, even in journalism today, I say, just talk to me freely. Just, just, just talk. And after we finish talking, you can tell me what, what you think you've said that, uh, that you prefer to withdraw. Mm. And so I give people a kind of freedom up front, and I'm true to my word, and I I don't uh, I, I don't take a hard line, and I I keep it open and fluid, and you know they can they can get back to me a week later and say you know I told you about that and really that's awkward, please don't use it, and I mm. won't. Mm. So um so I think I built up trust over many years, and also I I there's a lot about them out in, in the public sphere now, and mm. I. I went to all the Westfield public meetings and shareholder meetings, and I read all the annual reports. And I, I just, you know, I read everything I possibly could, and I listened to everything I possibly could about about him and his family. Mm. Plus, I had tremendous access. And what kind of access? Like, did you sort of sit down for X number of chats, or was it just a casual thing until you got what you needed? No, no, because it wasn't he... casual. It was. I had a tape recorder. I recorded everything, mm. and uh, I. Would, but what I do is I just. Um, I found a wonderful kind of recording uh, program for my iPad, and so you just put the iPad on the table, and it's pretty unobtrusive. Mm. And then you chat, and it picks up everything in the room, and so I would. I would never just. Um, the, the visits weren't social. The visits were were work orientated, mm. and um, he, because he trusted me. Mm. His wife trusted me, his sons trusted me, and so the trust trickled down through the family. Mm. And uh, and uh, and I think this technique of asking people to speak freely and then being true to your word to to to, um, to withdraw what they want withdrawn um, is quite effective for me. And can you estimate at all how many... I'm just trying to get an idea of how much time you spent. Like, um, Can you estimate at all how many you know, hours that you might have spent with Frank Lowy or the Lowy family generally? I only ask because, you know, we interview some people who've written biographies of people and I'm sometimes very shocked, to be honest, to hear that they had six hours and that was it. Uh, I, I, had, I, had, I had multiple multiple to that. You know, mm. I think that it depends on what kind of biography you're writing, really. Yes. You know, if you're writing... Um, if you're writing a biography, it's a different animal if you're writing a biography with very little personal access. Mm. What I was writing here is 
plainly an authorized biography. He he cooperated. He agreed to cooperate. Yes. And so he gave me the time, and everybody you know, and, and and those around him gave me the time. Mm-hmm. And what you 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 gain something through having an authorized biography, but you also lose something. So um, what you lose is that hard, you know, that kind of the the, the distance. You you're not looking at the subject from, you know, from from two hundred yards. Mm. You know, you you get really close up, and you can have a very close look, and so you lose. You might lose some critical distance. Although I tried not to be, you know, I tried to retain my critical faculty. But what you what you gain um, through the loss of distance is that you gain revelation. You know, they talk to you, they tell you things, yeah. they open up, and they trust you. And that um, and and I think that that's a lot of the detail in the book is the result of that process. And in the process of writing this biography, did you do all of your research and your interviews first and then when you felt you had this critical mass, you started writing or were there bits of writing in between? How did that work? Well, um, it was kind of a medley. You know, I would, uh, I, I struggled a lot to try and get some order into the, I struggled trying to think how I would, what I would do for the second book. Initially, I just thought I'd, when I watched his his life unfolding from 70, I thought, oh, I know what I'll do. I'll just add a postscript to the existing book. I'll just add you know, a couple of chapters onto the existing book that will cover it. Mm. But then when I started exploring it, I realized there was much more. And so then I tried to do it in subjects. So I, you know, I thought I'll do football or I'll do um, a think, t- you know, his interest in foreign policy and his establishing a think tank or, 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 or medical stuff. But they were all they were all evolving and unfolding as I was writing it, and so I had to eventually just draw a line in the sand and say, you know, I'm stopping here. Mm. And and how did you then decide? Because you ha- you know there's some bits that are obviously chronological because it makes sense to tell it that way, and there's some bits that you kind of told in well not in a chronological order. How did you make sense of what you were going to do with this massive research that you had in front of you. Apart, I know you said you tried different things, put it in different subjects in the end, but in the end, how did you decide the structure of your, of your work? Well, um, it was an, so that, was, that's probably, that was probably the biggest challenge, was how to order the material. Mm. And I cut and chopped it in various different ways and I moved it around in different blocks. And, uh, you know, Oh, the way I work is that I just keep going at something until some kind of solution eventually emerges. And it's not a conscious thing. It just kind of just happens somehow. And after struggling and getting a really awkward, stilted, unsatisfactory, you know, one, one unsatisfactory solution after the next, suddenly I just realized how I could do it. And uh, I put it into three silos and married them together. And then I had relief because... I had some kind of internal order. Mm, you knew it felt right. Yeah, I knew it felt right. But it, it was a, there were two things that were a great struggle. One was trying to figure out a way to order this material. Yeah. And secondly, was trying to find a place for myself to stand in relation to it, you know, to find the right tone or the right voice or the right perspective. Mm-hmm. Now, when you were hearing someone else's story, like Frank Lowy's or, you know, a member of his family, it's really their version of the story. It's their recollection of events, particularly if these were things that happened years ago. Years ago. In what instances did you feel necessary to verify that story or to get another perspective, you know, be, just to make sure that it was – you would – putting forward something that, that, that was accurate? So, um, 
Well, because you know the first book, the first book was was largely historical and was looking back. But this book, I was actually living through the period of fifteen years, had already knowing him quite well. Mm. So when something, so, so for example, um, he did a big, a big, he did a big commercial restructure of Westfield last year, which was enormously controversial, and uh, brought a lot of vitriol, and there was a lot of sentiment that uh, he was a tall puppy about to fall, and things got pretty nasty. And I went to all the meetings, I had my tape recorder on, I read all the press, and there was a lot of it, and I watched the television, and so I kind of had a context, I knew what was, I knew what was being said in the public sphere. Mm. And then I, would go, then I went to him at the time, and got a story from what, how he saw it, and from, from his antagonists, and from, his, and from people, advocates for him. And then six months later, I went back to him and saw what it looked like to him with some hindsight. Mm. So you take you have to take in some cases you have to take quite a few soundings until you get until you get the right the right thing because it's changing and with retrospect as well it looks it looks different. Mm. And the, I keep coming back to this sheer volume of research that you have, but it's it's a massive amount of research. And as you say, you went to all the meetings, you've taken notes at all of these things on a practical level, because there are listeners who you know often wonder how on the practical level do I manage all of this research? Can you tell us? Did you have how, how did you manage the research? Did you have particular files on different eras, or or by topic, or by you know dates, or by by who said it, or or what? Well, or was it just it, this mess and you hope that it, you could pull it together in the end? <laughs> it was, you know, I have a big box into which I throw everything for my tax return, like a big <laughs> shoe box, you know, and then it's chaos. And then I'm amazed at what order can emerge from it when, you know, when, absolutely, when the deadline is, is upon me. And it was similar in this case. And I had, uh, I had big, big boxes of sort of you know, football and another big box of business and another big box of this and another big box of that. And so I would also tear, I, I get three newspapers delivered to the house every day and I would tear out stuff that whatever I saw with a date yes, and put it in a box and think, well, I'll look at that later. You know, so, I'd, so when I came to write about business, I had this, you know, I had two, two big boxes. Oh, my goodness. And, and plus, plus, you know, annual reports and all sorts of other stuff. And you just start going through it, you know, look, just looking for trends. I, you, I kind of, you can't, you can't, I, I found it too boring to, to trump through it sort of chronologically. I was looking for, so I decided on a few themes and trends and then sort of try to follow those. Mm-hmm. So in business, for example, you know, the thing for Frank was that he, he really thrives on, on being in charge and on having the power, but he's also... Um, engendered in his children a love, you know, he'd, he'd encourage his children to become powerful and to become, to, to hold the levers too. And so there he was at the top of the mountain, feeling the power, looking down and seeing his three sons coming up. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, first of all, he knew that they were going to take some of the power from him. The, 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 the discomfort of having to share the power was mitigated by the parental pride he had in the fact that his children were going to take, you know, share the power. Mm. And so, you know, the sharing of power is a theme, for example, when you get to business. And um, so if you look at it that way, rather than looking at it, you know, one deal to the next deal to the next deal, it, you kind of, it, mm. it, 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 it makes the text richer, I think. Yes, absolutely. So when you get to know somebody and you talk to them in such depth and they trust you, which obviously they did, they often reveal pretty personal things. So did you, you know, in even, and I know you gave them the option how you can withdraw that. At any point, did you censor 
sense of them in a sense, kind of thinking, oh, really, he shouldn't say that. I'm, uh, you know, did you ever think that's too personal? Maybe I shouldn't include it? Well, I think that there's sometimes there's a taste. Yeah, some, well, not necessarily what they told me, what other people might have said about them as well. You know, sometimes people, sometimes you've got to be aware of, you know, there were some deals that some some deals that were, 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 were con- had confidentiality or had legal restricts re- legal restraints. Mm. You've got to be aware of all these different factors. Mm. And um, the issue about writing about a living, active person, about, writing a biography about a living, acting, per, active person has complications because he's because people who are commercially involved with him don't want to go on the record saying bad things about about mm. him because they don't want to be commercially compromised. Mm. So. Um, you know, a lot of people are happy to talk to you anonymously and say things, but you have to you have to find your way because if somebody doesn't own what they say, you, it's not it's not believable really. Mm-hmm. So um, so it's it's complicated. But they, I learned a few things that I, that I wasn't able to use because of because of other constraints. Mm-hmm. And did I send to them? No, none of them were that. None of them were that unguarded with me. That that. Uh, that I, that I needed to censor what the lawyers were saying. I don't recall doing that. Mm. When you were writing, I mean, you've got a, a, a full-time job. Did you take time off or did you juggle this with your job in journalism? How did you manage the writing process and your, you know, professional career? Well, I, it's not full-time. I only work uh, three or four days a week. Mm-hmm. And, but still, uh, that's, I, that's, you know, significant. Yes, it is, and uh, it's a writing job. So actually, so you know, it's, so it, it keeps my my, my keeps my machinery oiled, so to speak. <laughs> yes. So, um, so that's good for me. But um, I did take. I took all my holiday. My, I never had holidays. All mm. my, it, it, as a journalist, you get quite generous. You get six weeks holidays, and sometimes I took a couple of weeks unpaid leave too. And I took long service leave, which I used as well. Oh. And. Um, I worked very. I worked very hard. I had. I had to work at night, and I had to work. I was always look, and I had, you know, had to have a have a household too, mm. with uh, some children at home, and I just um, was always looking for an opportunity to slip away and perhaps just take an hour here, an hour there. Mm-hmm. And when so you're writing in, you know, when wherever you, whenever you could, when you, um, you know, at night. But when you did take. That a chunk of time off, like your long service leave or whatever, did yeah. you try to get in some kind of writing routine where you would try to generate X number of words a day? Did you have a target or, or anything like that? Did you did you have a routine? I went through all those things that some people say, you know, don't, <laughs> don't get up until you've got, you know, a thousand words or don't get up until you've got 500 words or whatever it was. Yes. But that, does, that didn't work for me because sometimes I'd just get in a role and it would just be wonderful and sometimes nothing would happen. And uh, well, nothing useful would happen. I'd look at it and I'd think, "Oh God, that's sort of breathless and ghastly." And um, did I have a routine? I had a, I had some. Yeah, I did. I decided that um, I think one one December January was very hot. I had an air conditioner put in <laughs> to this room, and mm-hmm. where I work. And I just decided that I would, you know, I would do X number of hours a day, regardless, and the rest of the day would be free. And that worked for me. Great. What's um. Uh, for people who are interested in writing biographies and who haven't, you know, had the opportunity yet, what do you think is the biggest mistake they could make? Um, Something that you've obviously learnt. Yeah, I think that my, I think I think my first book on Frank was a little bit breathless. You know, I was I was very impressed, mm-hmm. and uh, I think that I, I I think I 
could have taken a, a couple of steps. It's not to get too close, to take a couple of steps back, I think. Mm. And um, you also have to also have to know, you know, if you if you're writing if you're writing a book about depends if you're writing a book about um, if you're writing a, a book about a, a, a person who's passed on. That's completely different. A completely different exercise. Mm. You know, you don't have to worry about the author coming back and saying, "What's you know, buying the book and reading it from the bookshop and saying, you know, what's that? You know, what does that mean? What did you mean by that? Well, that's not right or that's not true. Yes. Um, so, um, so I think that um, I think the second book is not breathless in in the same way. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that uh, you've, you've got to keep your critical faculty. Mm. And I think that. I was thinking about, about about biography really, and there's kind of layers of writing a biography. And you know, the, the first thing is that you've got to get the facts and you've got to get the chronology. Mm. And some people think that that's enough for a biography. You know, he was born here, did A, B, C, and then died. Mm. And um, I think that's just the substrata. And then on top of that comes, you, on top of the on top of the events and the chronology, I think it's, it's got to come a layer of um, of emotional reality. And give it some warmth and sort of breathe some life into it. So, you, you try and give, you try and create an, the, the next layer is kind of an emotional layer that's interwoven with the chronology below. Mm. And then once you've got the once you've got the, the emotional layer on it, then you put on and on top of that you kind of add reflection. You know, what does this mean? You know, you have the person thinking. What are their thoughts? What does it mean? What were they What were they intending? What was the impact of what they were doing? Mm. And then. I think you put it in the whole context of their era and when they were living, you know. So, so it's there are many layers, there are many ingredients, and many sort of techniques that go into into, into constructing a biography. It's like it's like making a many-layered cake. Mm. Beautifully expressed. Well, what's next for you? I'm um, I'm now I've, I'm going to do another men's health book. I've written a few men, a couple of two men's health books mm-hmm. books on men's health. And I think after this biography, I think I'm just takes it's going to be quite, quite a quite a different exercise, and uh, I'll just fall into back back into what I what I do for a living, which is men's health, and write another book on that. And um, in fact, I've I've already begun in in a little way to do that. And would you be interested in writing another biography? Oh, I've written. I've also along the way, I've written. Um, I've, I've written memoirs for people. Mm-hmm. I've uh, sometimes, uh, on two occasions, I've ghosted a memoir. So you know, the memoir is the first person, yeah. first person written. From, you know, they I did this and I did that, but it, and my name doesn't appear. I found that very interesting. Is is, is writing is writing memoirs for people in their voice. Mm. And um, and I've also been a researcher on 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 other people's autobiographies. Mm-hmm. So I um, but for the moment I think I want to have a bit of a rest, and I think it's just it'll be restful actually doing doing a little book on men's health. Yes, I think that uh, the Lowy book was a tour de force, so I think you probably deserve a rest. What's your advice to writers who are interested in? Um, in, in getting into this area, into writing about other people's lives. What's my advice? Well, I, yeah. think you, I think you've got to find somebody who you think you can stick with for the long haul mm. you know, because it, it takes many years to do it. And um, it, takes, it takes many years to do it. And I don't think there's any, any real shortcut. You've got to accumulate all this material. You've got to find themes. You've got to speak to other people. You've got to put it in context. All, all the things that I, I talked about, I mean, it's a, it's a kind of commitment. It's... Um, 
it's undertaking quite a big task and uh, sometimes you're not happy with what you do. I mean, I wasn't happy for a long time with, with this book and it, it took ages before I, I felt satisfied with what it was. But you got there in the and end I'm, and... But I'm still not entirely satisfied. <laughs> really? Yes. What are you not I, satisfied about? Well, I think it's too big. I think if I'd been more disciplined, it would have been smaller. <laughs> okay. Well, as I said, I think, like, you know, I wasn't even interested in Frank Lowy. I certainly am now. Uh, but I picked up the book, started reading, and just couldn't stop. So thank you very much for writing it, and thank you for chatting to us today. Oh, it's my pleasure. So there you go. What did you think? Really interesting. I, I'm fascinated by biography. I think it's such an interesting field because, you know, you're, you're amassing an enormous amount of information about someone else's life. There's a certain amount of pressure, particularly when they're still with us, yes. to, um, you know, to get it right because, mm. you know, there's that. Um, it's, not like mem- like, it's not like you're ghostwriting an autobiography or something where you have to actually get their voice as well, mm. but it's still, you know, there's a certain amount of analysis. You've got to try and be as... Yeah, I don't know. I, I think it's a it's a really interesting project. It's such a long. I, I just can't imagine how much work's involved in something oh, like that. The volume of research mm. is the thing that, as I'm reading it, you know, I, I just kept thinking, how in the world did she manage this volume of research? So mm. yeah, just, and keeping the pro, keeping the project in some form of like my biggest issue would be I'd probably just end up so disorganised. I don't think my one word document approach yes. would uh, <laughs> would cut it in this particular instance. <laughs> no, no, no. So let's move on to our web pick for the week. It's actually our app pick for the week and mm. um, it's called The Brainstormer and you can just get it on iTunes. Uh, it's mm. actually only for iPhone and iPad so oh. I don't think Android uses Sorry, but um, it's called The Brainstormer and it says that it helps you randomly combine a plot, a subject and a setting or style to help, you know, give you inspiration in your writing. And there's sort of these three spinning wheels featuring plot and pop, sorry, plot slash conflict theme slash setting and subject slash location. So you manipulate the wheels or you do a random spin, you generate different combinations and you end up with all these different creative prompts that you can use in your writing. So it's it's a great writing prompt for, you know, if you just want something, if you just want to be given, here's your task and it's a task that's actually workable, you know, because when you've got those yeah. those combinations, it, it really does work and then go for it. So yeah, yeah you can whack that onto your iPhone or your iPad for two dollars and forty nine cents. Great, great for exercising the writing muscle. Like if you're trying to build a daily writing habit, which I know that lots of people are, um, it's a great way because it's like, okay, well, here it is. Now you've got ten minutes or fifteen minutes or whatever it is to, you know, to crank out a short story or you know five hundred words or whatever that. Yes. Um, on that subject. I think it's a I think it's a really fun idea. Yeah. Be good excellent. for kids. Yeah, excellent. Because it's not because a lot of writing prompts just say just sort of start off with um, a really vague premise or they say yeah. something like she opened the door and then you know what I mean? And that's all. Yeah. Whereas dot, this dot, dot. Exactly. Whereas this really, you know, gives you a little bit more concrete stuff that you can hang off a skeleton, so to speak. Mm. Hmm. So let's move on to our working writers tip. 
for this week. And this was, is a question that is so often asked, particularly in our copywriting graduates group. And um, it is, and, and as a result, Liz Pulo wrote a blog post in response that is a really wonderful, clear articulation of explaining how it all works. But basically, so many writers say, and I'm sure you hear this question, Al, they say, mm. you know, I've started this gig with a client, particularly if it's a copywriting gig or a content writing gig, not so much like if you're doing uh, editorial work for the Sydney Morning Herald or something, but um, and they say we started off with a brief and it's just blown out and we've got it's going to take heaps more time than I originally expected. You know, do I still quote the same amount, charge the same amount? What do I do? What do you say to that? Well, Valerie, you know, you and I both know that I've been in this boat myself because we have had several conversations with me going, I have no idea how to quote this job, <laughs> haven't we? Yes. And that's mostly for copywriting yes. because copywriting to me is can often be how long's a piece of string mm. and you've got pe- everybody wants it for rock bottom and you don't want to do it for rock bottom and it gets difficult. But I have to say that this post by Liz is so incredibly good because, you know, she talks about... Um, death by detail. She talks about putting every single thing in the actual quote because that way you can direct your client back to the quote. If they accept this quote and you find that you're getting what's called quote creep and, you know, the project's, you know, blowing out to more than you expected, Mm. you direct them back to it and say, see, I put this in writing at the start. This is what you agreed to. If you need me to do X, Y, and Z as well, I'm happy to quote you extra for that. And I think that that is probably one of the best pieces of advice on copywriting quotes I've ever, you know, seen, and I should remember it myself more often. (laughs) And we'll put Thanks, Liz. Yeah, thanks, Liz. We'll put the link into the show notes. It's a very comprehensive blog post about how to quote, how to scope the project, what happens and how to actually talk to your client if it if, if quote creep does happen. Really good comprehensive post. Yeah, and I have to say that one thing I learned very, very early on in my copywriting um, career mm. was the very there was the importance of including how many revisions you're willing to do for the fee that you're quoting. I, it's like, okay, I will do this and one set of revisions or two sets of revisions or whatever because when it's going backwards and forwards and backwards and forwards, as it can do with corporations because it goes yes. up through so many layers of management, you go insane and you get cranky. And when you get cranky, it's not very good for your customer relations skills, yep. trust me, because I get cranky um, or I used to, but now I don't. Um <laughs> So now I'm a dream to work with just in case anyone's interested. Uh, <laughs> but no, seriously, make sure you put it in. Make sure you, you clarify exactly what the client can expect for their dollars. Absolutely. I once worked for a major Australian bank, won't mention any names, and mm. um, we, I would send in some copy and they would come back and say, oh, shouldn't there be a comma after who, however? And I'd say, oh, yes, okay, that's fine. And then I would get another email back, please send the article back with the comma. Mm. Yeah. So any tiny change, like even a punctuation mark, yeah. they wanted expect a to do fresh it. You copy. will have to do it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I've had I, lots of people expect that because they don't want to actually have to do anything themselves. They're expecting a product from you. And mm. so, you know, be prepared to do it you're going to be moving the commas. So make sure you charge accordingly. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. All right. Well, that brings us almost to the end of our podcast this week. What are you doing in the coming week? Oh, what am I doing this week? Uh, I'm answering questionnaires because um, 
the release of Breath of the Dragon, Mapmakers 3, is sort of about six weeks away. So that means the questionnaires have begun to to flood in. I'm getting so good at them now. Mm. Um, so I'm answering questionnaires. I'm uh, working on my course, Build Your Author Platform, which yes. is coming along nicely for everyone who's asking me, tapping their foot, waiting for it. It's coming along nicely. I know it is exciting. Uh, so I'm doing that. Uh, I've got a few different things. Oh, and you know what else I'm doing is I'm putting together a new writing workshop for kids. Oh, great! Um, I know, I love it. So I've got one that I do that I take around to all the schools at the moment, and I'm just I'm in the process of creating some new ones, and it's called Find Your Writing Superpower. Oh, I love it. I know, and Maxabella, my sister, who is you know fantastic, is putting together a whiz bang a pow. Um, a PowerPoint presentation to go with it for me. Oh, she's cool. so good. I know everybody needs a Maxabella. Go in their Maxabella. Life. Yeah, <laughs> love it. Um, so that's what I'm doing. And you, what are you doing? Uh, I will be running a workshop tomorrow on how to build your profile. And at the end of the week, I will be heading to Melbourne to uh, speak at the Key Person of Influence um, day there. And I will be getting stuck into, because I was so inspired by reading the biography of Frank Lowy, uh, I'm reading another nonfiction thing, I'm gonna get, which is I'm getting stuck into next. And it's the memoir by Grace Coddington. Oh, I've had it for ages and I haven't read it as yet. It's been on my to-be-read pile for a long time. Yes. I look forward to hearing what you think of it. I loved her in that movie. Uh, in that documentary, the, the they September did the September issue. issue. Mm. I loved her in that, and Brilliant. I I got the biography not long after that, and then I, for some reason I haven't got around to reading it. Well, it's interesting because one of the things she says, because I have read the first few pages, is that she says, um, uh, "Let me see." Um, which she says um, that the September issue is the only reason anyone's ever heard of me. <laughs> That's so true. It is so true. I've never heard of her. And then she was amazing mm. in that. You know, Brilliant. she just struck me as so vogue. Yes, so but. vogue. <laughs> but I just don't know if I could do something for 25 years. You know what I mean? Could oh, you I guess if you loved it. The same much as position for 25 years, I just don't think I could do it. No. Anyway. No, probably not. No. We might be doing this podcast still in 25 years. Oh, you never know. Yes, that's exactly <laughs> what we'll be doing. <laughs> All right. That brings us to the end of this episode. Thank you so much for listening. Where can we find you on social media, Al? Well, you can start at alisontate.com, which is an excellent starting place. Yes. And then you'll find me on Twitter at, at Al Tate and on Facebook at Alison Tate Writer. And one day she might appear on Instagram. (laughs) Well, I am actually on Instagram as Alison Tate Writer. I just don't do anything there. So, you know, it's not much point. You can find me everywhere, including Instagram, on at at Valerie Koo. So, uh, and of course, the show notes can be found at writercentercomau slash podcast. If you have a question you'd like us to answer, please email us at podcast at writercentercomau And do listen to the very end of this show because you'll get a nice surprise giveaway. Yes. Giveaway. Love a giveaway. Love a giveaway. So until next time, we'll talk to you then. Bye. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writercentre.com.au slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writerscentre.com.au slash news where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions and much more. 
This week's giveaway is The Whirl by journalist Jane Cornwall, which is a travel memoir about music, men and misadventures. And there's lots about men. Visit writercentre.com.au slash win for your chance to win. Entries close Monday, 24 August 2015. But if you're listening to this podcast in the future, don't worry. There'll be a new book giveaway at writercentre.com.au slash win that you can check out. In the meantime, if you're looking for the show notes to this episode, go to writercentre.com.au slash podcast.